Chapter Five, Part One of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Five: The Man Who Squealed, Part One. Back in the early days, the payroll of the Hill Division was full of J. Smiths, T. Browns, and H. Something or Others, just as it is today. But today there is a difference. The years have brought a certain amount of inevitable pedigree, as it were, a certain amount of gossip, so to speak, over the back fences of Big Cloud. It's natural enough. There's a possibility, as a precedent, that one or two of the passengers on the Mayflower didn't have as much blue blood when they started on the voyage as their descendants have got now. It's possible. The old hooker, from all accounts, had a pretty full passenger list, and there may have been some who secured accommodations with few questions asked, and a subsequent coat of glorified whitewash that they couldn't have got if they'd stayed at home, where they were intimately known. That is, they couldn't have got the coat of glorified whitewash. It's true that there's a few years between the landing of the Mayflower and the inception of Big Cloud, but the interval doesn't count. The principle is the same. Out in the mountains on the Hill Division, who's who begins with the founding of Big Cloud. It is verbose, unprofitable, and extremely bad taste to go back any further than that, even if it were possible. There's quite a bit known about the J. Smiths, the T. Browns, and the H. Something or Others now, with the enlightenment of years upon them, but there wasn't then. There were a good many men who immigrated west to help build the road through the Rockies and run it afterwards for reasons of their own. There weren't any questions asked. Plain J. Smith, T. Brown, or H. Something or Other went. That was all there was to it. He said his name was Walton, P. Walton. He was tall, hollow-cheeked, with skin of an unhealthy, colorless white, and black eyes under thin black brows that were unnaturally bright. He dropped off at Big Cloud one afternoon in the early days, from number one, the limited from the east, climbed upstairs in the station to the super's room and coughed out a request to Carleton for a job. Carleton, Royal Carleton, the squarest man that ever held down a divisional swivel chair, looked P. Walton over for a moment before he spoke. P. Walton didn't size up much like a day's work any way you looked at him. "'What can you do?' inquired Carleton. "'Anything,' said P. Walton, and coughed. Carleton reached for his pipe and struck a match. "'If you could,' said he, sucking at the amber mouthpiece between words, "'there wouldn't be any trouble about it. For instance, the construction gangs want men to—' "'I'll go. I'll do anything,' cut in P. Walton eagerly. "'Just give me a chance.' "'Nope,' said Carleton with a grin. "'I'm not hankering to break the Sixth Commandment. "'Know what that is?' P. Walton licked dry lips with the tip of his tongue. "'Murder,' said he. "'But you might as well let it come that way as any other. "'I'm pretty bad here,' he jerked his thumb toward his lungs. "'And I'm broke here,' he turned an empty trousers pocket inside out. Mm observed Carleton reflectively. There was something in the other that touched his sympathy, and something apart from that that appealed to him, a sort of grim philosophical grit in the man with the infected lungs. I came out, said P. Walton, looking through the window and kind of talking to himself, 
because I thought it would be healthier for me out here than back east. I dare say, said Carlton, kindly, but not if you start in by swinging a pick. Maybe we can find something else for you to do. Never done any railroading. Walton shook his head. No, he answered. I've always worked on books. I'm called pretty good at figures, if you've got anything in that line. Clerk, mm -hmm. Well, I don't know, said Carlton slowly. I guess perhaps we can give you a chance. My own clerk's doing double shift just at present. You might help him out temporarily. And if you're what you say you are, we'll find something better for you before the summer's over. Thirty dollars a month. It's not much of a stake. What do you say? It's a pretty big stake for me, said P. Walton, and his face lighted up as he turned it upon Carlton. All right, said Carlton. You'd better spend the rest of the afternoon, then, in hunting up some place to live. And here, he dug into his pocket and handed P. Walton two five-dollar gold pieces. This may come in handy till you're on your feet. Say, said P. Walton, huskily, I... He stopped suddenly as the door opened and Regan, the master mechanic, came in. Never mind, smiled Carlton. Report to Halstead in the next room tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. P. Walton hesitated as though to complete his interrupted sentence, and then with an uncertain look at Regan, turned and walked quietly from the room. Regan wheeled around and stared after the retreating figure. When the door had closed, he looked inquiringly at Carlton. Touched you for a loan, eh? he volunteered quizzically. No, said Carlton, still smiling. A job. I gave him the money as an advance. More fool you, said the blunt little master mechanic. Your security's bad. He'll never live long enough to earn it. What sort of a job? Helping Halstead out to begin with, replied Carlton. Hmm, remarked Regan. Poor devil. Yes, Tommy, said Carlton. Quite so. Poor devil. Regan, big-hearted, good-natured for all his bluntness, walked to the front window and watched P. Walton's figure disappear slowly and a little haltingly down the platform. The fat little master mechanic's face puckered. We get some queer cards out here, he said. He looks as though he'd had a pretty hard time of it. Kind of a discard in the game, I guess. Out here to die. Pleasant, what? I wonder where he came from. He didn't say, said Carlton dryly. No, said Regan. I dare say he didn't. None of them do. I wonder, though, where he came from. And in this the division generally were in accord with Regan. They didn't ask, which was outside the ethics, and P. Walton didn't say, which was quite within his rights. But for all that the division with Regan wondered. Ordinarily, they wouldn't have paid much attention to a new man one way or the other, but P. Walton was a little more than just a new man. He was a man they couldn't size up. That was the trouble. It didn't matter who anyone was or where he came from if they could form an opinion of him, which wasn't hard to form in most instances, that would at all satisfactorily fill the bill. But P. Walton didn't bear the earmarks of a hard case wanted East or show any tendency toward deep theological thought. Therefore, opinions were conflicting, which wasn't satisfying. Not that P. Walton refused to mix or held himself aloof or anything of that kind. 
On the contrary, all hands came to know him pretty well, as P. Walton. As a matter of cold fact, they had more chances of knowing him than they had of knowing most newcomers. And that bothered them a little, because somehow they didn't seem to make anything out of their opportunities. As assistant clerk to the super, P. Walton was soon a familiar enough figure in the yards, the roundhouse, and the shops, and genial enough, and pleasant enough, too. But they never got past the pure, soft-spoken, perfect English, and the kind of firm, determined swing to the jaw that no amount of emaciation could eliminate. They agreed only on one thing, on the question of therapeutics. They were unanimous on that point with Regan. P. Walton, whatever else he was or wasn't, was out there to die. And it kind of looked to them as though P. Walton had through rights to the terminal and not much of any limit to speak of on his permit. Regan put the matter up to Carlton one day in the super's office about a month after P. Walton's advent to Big Cloud. "'I said he was a queer card the first minute I clapped eyes on him,' observed the master mechanic, "'and I think so now, only more so. What in blazes does a white man want to go and live in a two-room pigsty with a family of Polacks and about eighteen kids for?' Carlton tamped down the dottle in his pipe with his forefinger, musingly. "'How much a week, Tommy?' he inquired. He is thirty dollars a month, with about a third of the time out for six spells. Oh, I'm not a mathematician, growled the little master mechanic. About five dollars, I guess. It's a good guess, said Carleton quietly. He bought new clothes, you remember, with the ten I gave him, and he needed them badly enough. Carleton reached into a drawer of his desk and handed Regan an envelope that was torn open across the end. "'I found this here this afternoon, after the pay-car left,' he said. Regan peered into the envelope, then extracted two five-dollar gold pieces and a note. He unfolded the note and read the two lines written in a hand that looked like a steel plate engraving. "'With thanks and grateful appreciation, P. Walton.' Regan blinked, handed the money, note, and envelope back to Carlton, and fumbled a little awkwardly with his watch-chain. "'He's the best hand with figures, and his pen it's ever been my luck to meet,' said Carleton, kind of speculatively. "'Better than Halstead, a whole lot better. Halstead's going back east in a couple of weeks into the general office. Got the offer, and I couldn't stand in his way. I was thinking of giving P. Walton the job and breaking some young fellow in to relay him when he's sick. What do you think about it, Tommy?' "'I think,' said Regan softly. He's been getting blame few eggs and less fresh air than he ought to have had, trying to make good on that loan. And I think he's a better man than I thought he was. A fellow that would do that is white enough not to fall very far off the right away. I guess you won't make any mistake as far as trusting him goes. No, said Carleton, I don't think I will. And therein Carleton and Regan were both right and wrong. P. Walton wasn't... But just a minute. We're overrunning our holding orders. P. Walton is in the block ahead. The month hadn't helped P. Walton much physically, even if it had helped him more than he perhaps realized in Carleton's estimation. And the afternoon following Regan's and Carleton's conversation, alone in the room, for Halstead was out, he was hanging over his desk a pretty sick man, though his pen moved steadily with the work before him, 
when the connecting door from the super's office opened and Bob Donkin, the dispatcher, came hurriedly in. "'Where's the super?' he asked quickly. "'I don't know,' said P. Walton. "'He went out in the yards with Regan half an hour ago. I guess he'll be back shortly.' "'Well, you'd better try and find him and give him this. Forty-two will be along in twenty minutes.' Donkin slapped a tissue on the desk and hurried back to his key in the dispatcher's room. P. Walton picked up the tissue and read it. It was from the first station west on the line. Gopher Butte, 3.16 p.m. J. H. Carlton, Superintendent Hill Division. Number 42, held up by two train robbers three miles west of here, express messenger Nulty in game fight killed one and captured the other in the express car. Arrange for removal of body, and have sheriff on hand to take prisoner into custody on arrival in Big Cloud. Everything okay. McCurdy, conductor. P. Walton, with the telegram in his hand, rose from his chair and made for the hall through the super's room, reading it a second time as he went along. There had been some pretty valuable express stuff on the train, as he knew from the correspondence that had passed through his hands, and he smiled a little grimly. "'Well, they certainly missed a good one,' he muttered to himself. "'I think I'd rather be the dead one than the other. "'It'll go hard with him. Twenty years, I guess.' He stepped out into the hall to the head of the stairs and met Carleton coming up. Carleton, quick as a steel trap, getting the gist of the message in a glance, brushed by P. Walton, hurried along the wall to the dispatcher's room, and the next moment a wide-eyed call-boy was streaking uptown for the sheriff and breathlessly imparting the tale of the hold-up embellished with gory imagination to everyone he met. By the time 42's whistle sounded down the gorge, there was a crowd on the platform bigger than a political convention, and P. Walton, by virtue of his official position, rather than from physical qualifications, together with his chief, Regan, the ticket agent, the baggage master, and Carruthers, the sheriff, were having a hard time of it to keep themselves from being shoved off on the tracks, let alone trying to keep a modest breadth of the platform clear. And when the train came to a stop with screeching brake shoes and the side door of the express car was shot back with a dramatic bang by someone inside, the crowd seemed to get altogether beyond P. Walton's control and surged past him. As they handed out a hard-visaged, bullet-headed customer, whose arms were tightly lashed behind him, P. Walton was pretty well back by the ticket office window with the crowd between him and the center of attention. And P. Walton was holding his handkerchief to his lips, flecking the handkerchief with a spot or two of red, and coughing rather badly. Carlton found him there when the crowd trailing Carruthers and his prisoner uptown thinned out, and Carlton sent him home. P. Walton, however, did not go home, though he started in that direction. He followed in the rear of the crowd up to Carruthers' place, saw steel bracelets replace the cords around the captive's wrists, saw the captive's legs securely bound together and the captive chucked into Carruthers' back shed. This was in the early days, and Big Cloud hadn't yet risen to the dignity of a jail, with about as much formality as would be used in handling a sack of meal. After that, Carruthers barred the door by slamming the long, two-inch-thick piece of timber that worked on a pivot in the center home into its iron rests with a flourish of finality, as though to indicate that the show was over, and the crowd dispersed, the men headed for the swinging doors of the blazing star, and the women for their own back fences. 
P. Walton, with a kind of grim smile on his lips, retraced his steps to the station, climbed the stairs, and started through the super's room to reach his own desk. Carlton removed his pipe from his mouth and stared angrily as the other came in. "'You blamed idiot!' he exploded. "'I thought I told you to go home!' "'I'm feeling better,' said P. Walton. "'I haven't got those night orders out yet for the roundhouse. There's three specials from the east tonight.' "'Well, Halstead can attend to them,' said Carlton, a kindliness creeping into the tones that he tried to make gruff. "'What are you trying to do? Commit suicide?' "'No,' said P. Walton, with a steady smile. "'Just my work. It was a little too violent exercise trying to hold the crowd, that was all. But I'm all right now.' "'You blamed idiot,' grunted Carlton again. "'No, I didn't you say so. I never thought of it. I wouldn't have let—' "'It doesn't matter.' said P. Walton brightly. I'm all right now. And he passed on into his own room. When he left his desk again, it was ten minutes of six, and Carlton had already gone. P. Walton, with his neatly written order sheets, walked across the tracks to the roundhouse, handed them over to Clarahue, the night-turner who had just come in, and then hung around, toying in an apparently aimless fashion with the various tools on the workbenches till the whistle blew, while the fitters, wipers, and day-gang generally washed up. After that he plodded across the fields to the Polack quarters on the other side of the tracks from the town proper, stumbled into the filthy garlic-smelling interior of one of the shacks, and flung himself down on the bunk that was his bedroom. "'Lord!' he muttered. "'I'm pretty bad tonight.' Guess I'll have to postpone it. Might be as well, anyway. He lay there for an hour, his bright eyes fastened now on the dirty, squalling brood of children upon the floor, now on the heavy, slatternly figure of their mother, and now on the tin bowl of boiled sheep's head that awaited the arrival of Ivan Peloff, the master of the house, and then, with abhorrent disgust, he turned his eyes to the wall. "'Thank God I get into a decent place soon,' he mumbled once. "'It's the roughest month I ever spent. I'd rather be back where—' He uh, smiled sort of cryptically to himself. "'Where I came from.' A moment later he spoke again in a queer, kind of argumentative, kind of self-extenuating way in broken sentences. "'Maybe I'll put it on a little too thick, boarding here.' so's to stand in with Carlton and pay that ten back quick. But, my God, I was scared. I got to stand in with somebody or go to the wall. It was after seven when Ivan Peloff came, smelling strong of drink, and excitement heightened the flush upon his cheek. Hello, Mr. Walton, he bubbled out with earnest inebriety. We raise hell tonight, by and by. Get them goods by midnight. Ivan Peloff drew his fingers around his throat, and in lieu of English that came hard to him at any time, jerked his thumb dramatically up and down in the air. "'Who?' inquired P. Walton, without much enthusiasm. "'Damn robber! Him by train come in!' explained Ivan Peloff laboriously. "'Oh?' said P. Walton. "'Talking of stringing him up, is that it?' Ivan Peloff nodded his head delightedly. P. Walton swung himself lazily from his bunk. "'Eat?' invited Ivan Peloff, moving toward the table. "'No,' said P. Walton, moving toward the door. "'I'm not hungry. I'm going out for some air.' 
Ivan Paloff pulled two bottles of a deadly brand from under his coat and set them on the table. Me eat, he grinned. Bimbay have drinks all around. He waved his hands as though to embrace the whole Polak quarter. Then we comes. Raise hell. Do him goods by midnight. P. Walton halted in the doorway. Who put you up to this, Piloff? he inquired casually. Cowboys, grinned Paloff, lunging at the sheep's head. Plenty drink. Say, have fun. Cowboys, hmm? observed P. Walton. So they're in town, are they, and looking for fun. We fix him good by midnight, repeated Ivan Paloff, wagging his head, then with a sudden scowl. You not tell, huh, Mr. Walton? P. Walton smiled disinterestedly. But there wasn't any doubt in P. Walton's mind that devilment was in the wind. Big Cloud, in the early days, knew its full share of that. Ah, said P. Walton quietly, as he went out. No, I won't tell. It's no business of mine, is it? It was fall, and already dark. P. Walton made his way out of the Polak quarters, reached the tracks, crossed them, and then headed out through the fields to circle around the town to the upper end again, where it dwindled away from cross streets to the houses flanking on Main Street alone. I guess, he coughed and smiled, I won't postpone it till tomorrow night, after all. It was a long walk for a man in P. Walton's condition, and it was a good half-hour before he finally stopped in the rear of Sheriff Carruthers' back shed and listened. There were no fences here, just a procession of buttes and knolls, merging the prairie country into the foothills proper of the Rockies. Neither was there any sound. P. Walton stifled a cough, and slipped like a shadow through the darkness around to the front of the shed, shifted the wooden bar noiselessly on its pivot, opened the door, and as he stepped inside, closed it softly behind him. Butch, he whispered, a startled ejaculation and a quick movement of a man suddenly shifting his position on the floor answered him. "'Keep quiet, Butcher. It's all right,' said P. Walton calmly, and, stooping, guiding his knife-blade by the sense of touch, cut away the rope from the other's ankles. He caught at the steel-linked wrists and helped the man to his feet. "'Come on,' he said. "'Slip around to the back of the shed. Talk later.' P. Walton pushed the door open, and the man he called the butcher, lurching a little unsteadily from cramped ankles, passed out. P. Walton carefully closed the door, coolly replaced the bar in position, and joined the other. "'Now run for it,' he said, and led the way straight from the town. For two hundred yards, perhaps a little more, they raced, and then P. Walton stumbled and went down. "'I'm, I'm not very well tonight,' he gasped. "'This'll do. It's far enough.' The butcher halted, gazed at the prostrate form. "'Say, call what's your name?' he demanded. "'I owe you something for this, and don't you forget it.' P. Walton made no answer. His head was swimming, lights were dancing before his eyes, and there was a premonitory weakness upon him whose issue he knew too well, unless he could fight it off. The butcher went down until his face was with an inch of P. Walton's. "'So help me,' he informed the universe in unbounded amazement. "'It's the Duke!' "'Sit down here opposite me and hold out your hands,' directed P. Walton with an effort. We haven't got 
any time to waste. The butcher, heavy with wonderment, obeyed mechanically, and P. Walton drew a rat-tailed file from his pocket. I saw you in the express car this afternoon, and I went to the roundhouse for this when I left the office, P. Walton said as he set to work on the steel links. But I was, uh, I was feeling kind of down and out, and was going to leave you till tomorrow night, only I heard they were going to lynch you at midnight. Lynch me, growled the butcher. What for? They don't lynch a fella cause he's nipped in a hold-up. We didn't kill no one. Some of the cowboys are looking for amusement, said P. Walton monotonously. They've distributed red-eye among the Polacks for the purpose, I imagine, of putting the blame on the Polacks. I get you, snarled the butcher with an oath. At the Bar K Ranch. We took their payroll away from them two weeks ago. Lynching, huh? Well, some of them will dance on air for this themselves, blast them. Duke, you white, and you always was. I thought me luck was out for keeps today when Spud... You saw Spud, didn't you? Yes, said P. Walton, filing steadily. "'Spud always had a soft spot in his heart,' said the butcher, "'instead of drilling that devil Nolte when he had the chance. "'Nolte filled Spud full of holes, and we fluked up. "'You're getting a bit of my wrist, Duke, with that damn file. "'Well, as I said, I thought me luck was out for keeps, "'and you show up. Gee! "'Who'd have thought of seeing the angel Duke, "'the prize penman, the gem of forgers? <laughs> "'How'd you make your getaway?' You was in for twenty spaces, wasn't you? I think they wanted to save the expense of burying me, said P. Walton. The other wrist, Butch, I got a pardon. What's the matter with you, Duke? inquired the butcher solicitously. Lungs, said P. Walton tersely. Bad. Hell, said Butcher earnestly. There was silence for a moment, save only for the rasping of the file, and then the butcher spoke again. What's your lay down out here, Duke? he asked. Working for the railroad in the super's office and keeping my mouth shut, said P. Walton. There's nothing in that, said the butcher profoundly. Nothing to it. Not much, agreed P. Walton. Forty a month and, oh well, forty a month. I'll fix that for you, Duke, said the butcher cheerily. You join the gang. There's the old crowd from Joliet up here in the mountains we got a swell layout there's larry and big tom and dago pete spuds cashed in and they'll stand on their heads and yell salvation army songs when they hear that the slickest of them all <laughs> that's you duke is buying a stack and setting in no said p walton no butch i guess not it's me for the forty per ah ejaculated the butcher heavily you don't mean to say you've turned parson, Duke. You wouldn't be letting me loose if you had. No, nothing like that, replied P. Walton. I'm sitting tight because I have to, until someone turns up and gives my record away, if I'm not dead first. I'm too sick, Butch, to be of any use to you. I couldn't stand the pace. Sure you could, said the butcher reassuringly. Anyway, I'm not for leaving a pal out in the cold, and... He stopped suddenly and leaned toward P. Walton. What was it you said you was doing in the office? He demanded excitedly. 
"'Assistant clerk to the superintendent,' said P. Walton, and his file bit through the second link. "'You'll have to get the bracelets off your wrists when you get back to the boys. Your hands are free.' "'Say,' said Butcher breathlessly, "'it's a cinch. You see the letters, and you know what's going on pretty familiar-like, don't you?' "'Yes,' said P. Walton. "'Well, say, can you beat it?' Once more the butcher invoked the universe. "'You're the inside man, see? Jeez, it's a cinch. We only knew there was Mazuma on the train today by a fluke, just Spud and me heard of it. Too late to plan anything fancy and get the rest of the gang. You see what happened. After this we don't have to take no chances.' You passes out the word when there's a good juicy lot of swag coming along, we does the rest, and you gets your share. Equal. And that ain't all. They'll be sending down east for the Pinkertons, if they ain't done it already, and we gives them the laugh. You tipping us off on the trains the dicks are riding on, and putting us wise to them generally. And say... The butcher's voice dropped suddenly to a low, sullen, angry growl. You give us delay the first crack we make when that low-lived snook-nosed Nolte's aboard. He goes out for Spud, and he goes out quick. He's fired a gun for the last time he'll ever fire one, see? P. Walton felt around on the ground, picked up the bit of chain he had filed from the handcuffs, and handed it with the file to Butcher. Put these in your pocket, Butch, he said, and throw them in the river where it's deep when you get a chance, especially the file. I guess from the way you put it, I could earn my stake with the gang. Didn't I tell you you could? The butcher, with a swift change of mood, grinned delightedly. Sure you can. Larry's an innocent-looking kid, and he's not known in the town. He'll float around and get the bulletins from you. You'll know ahead when there's anything good coming along, won't you? When it leaves the coast, said P. Walton. Thirty-six hours, sometimes more. "'And I thought me luck was out for keeps,' observed the butcher in an almost awestruck voice. "'Well, don't play it too hard by hanging around here until they get you again,' cautioned P. Walton dryly. "'The further you get away from Big Cloud in the next few hours, the better you'll like it tomorrow.' "'I'm off now,' announced the butcher, rising to his feet. "'Duke, you're white all the way through. Don't forget about Nolte. Blast him. He wrung P. Walton's hand with emotion. So long, Duke. So long, Butch, said P. Walton. End of chapter 5, part 1